Well, Happy New Year to all of you. As 2018 opens, we're going to ask the question today, not who do you look to, because I got told that's bad grammar, it's to whom do you look? And I trust that you're going to be encouraged today to look to Jesus, our only Lord and Saviour. Now, my day job is in training, and I look after operational training for the Department of Juvenile Justice. We train everything from leadership skills to suicide awareness, from understanding troubled teenagers through to how to handle the most violent of offenders. And we do this week in, week out without injury or incident. But last month, when 50 of our organisation's leaders visited for a two-day conference, we had two incidents where each time a colleague walked into a glass door. Both were the result of them being totally absorbed in mobile phone conversations. Now, in Luke chapter 9, we have another, another leadership meeting of sorts. Jesus has taken his three gun disciples, Peter, James and John, up the mountain to pray. And whilst they're there, Jesus is transfigured, meaning that his face glowed and his clothes turned as white as a flash of lightning, as we read. Moses and Elijah also miraculously appear and the scene is one of glorious splendour. Now I'm very confident that the disciples were not distracted by mobile phones but they still almost miss seeing this wondrous sight. Perhaps they were tired. Perhaps they were overwhelmed by the recent events in chapter 9. Or perhaps like some of us they were still in holiday mode. Whatever the reason, they almost missed this momentous event, one that signalled the beginning of the end game that was going to transform human history. Now, I think we often forget that Jesus was not only 100% God, but Jesus was also 100% man. He came, as Ian reminded us this morning, Emmanuel, God with us, the Word made flesh. And we remember as he uh, was starting his ministry, as Ian read to us this morning, that voice from heaven at his baptism. This is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus the man had been doing very well up to this point. He'd been healing the sick. He'd been making the blind see. He'd been making the lame walk. Word on the street was he might just be the Messiah, the saviour that the Jews had been looking for for so long. But the question was, how would they know for sure? What would this Messiah do? Now, the problem was is that it seems that they hadn't quite checked their scriptures closely enough. And instead of relying on the scriptures, they had kind of built up a picture for themselves of what this saviour might be in their own mind. Therefore, they only saw what they were looking for. And because they were not looking for the right thing in the right place at the right time and they were too self-absorbed, they almost missed seeing the truth that was right in front of them. Just like my colleagues missed seeing that glass door. But before we get too critical of them, how about we check this out? This is an awareness test. 
How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? so easy to miss what you're not looking for and like the Jews we tend only to see the things that we're looking for and those things that line up with our worldview and our experience and unfortunately in many cases our worldview is one that is very me centric and that's why we struggle when God whose ways are bigger than ours sometimes does something bigger or different to what we would just do. Here in Luke 9, God is doing something very big and very different. Jesus is actually marking out a new order that he will be on about. He is drawing a new Israel out of the old. And as he marks out this new order, he actually says it's going to be about these things. It's going to be about preaching the kingdom of God, that it's at hand in verses 1 to 9. He's going to say that he wants people to provide from the kingdom's riches to those who are in need. And the kingdom is going to mean sacrificial obedience and even suffering as people need to take up their cross daily. But it is going to also mean ultimate glory. Now, old Israel, and it's signified by King Herod in chapter 9, verse 7, is perplexed by what Jesus the man is doing. But he is not so swayed, not so interested, not so concerned to earnestly seek him out. Likewise, the crowds marveled at his saving works. However, they only wanted a saviour and not a new lord. And with Jesus, you can't have one without the other. Even when Jesus asked his disciples and Peter got the answer right, there was still this inability to believe that suffering and death could somehow be the path to glorious victory. So eight days later, Jesus takes these three disciples up a mountain to pray, no doubt desiring that God would make clear to them the truth he had revealed in verse 22. And that was that this son of man that was spoken of in Daniel 7, he would first need to be rejected by the chief priests and elders and then need to be killed. Now, many Christians crave what they call a mountaintop experience. They're seeking that God would suddenly draw near to them and that they might somehow feel his presence and that he might have a revelation that will encourage and inspire them. And perhaps you've had one of these experiences, maybe at a house party, maybe at a Bible study. They truly can be awesome, but the problem is they're often all too fleeting moments. And all too soon we feel that we're back in the grind and it's just me against the world. Psalm 121 that's on the screen says, I lift my eyes to the mountains from where my help will come. 
And whilst it's right to look beyond our frail selves, many get caught up and misunderstand these verses looking up to other people, looking up to governments, looking to other nations, or even to the mountains themselves as their source of hope and salvation. Yet we need to do what verse 2 says, that we look right past creation to the Creator, knowing that our help comes from the Lord, the one who made these very mountains and all those other things in which we're tempted to put our trust. So as we ask ourselves, to whom will we look in 2018, let's see this psalm of David for what it was, a soldier's psalm. David was preparing for the uncertainties of battle against large enemies, and he calmed his fears by reminding himself that his help was in the Lord. His God was almighty to save. He was powerful and would watch over him. He was all David needed. If David was going to look up to any mountain, it was going to picture the Temple Mount, the very dwelling place of his God, the place where God has made great promises to him, promises that he trusted would be fulfilled, promises that were fulfilled as God proved himself faithful time and again. And that brings us back to our scene in Luke 9. Jesus is standing on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. Now, yes, Moses and Elijah represented the Old Testament law and the prophets. But I think even more importantly, they were two men. And they were two men who had both met God face to face on mountains. Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 and Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Both had received direction and promises from God. Both had seen God faithfully discharge his promises, even though it had meant trial and suffering for them. How helpful I think this would have been to Jesus the man to see two faithful men, now in glory, encouraging him to steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem and achieve his father's plan. How helpful it would have been for Jesus, the man, to hear how God had proved faithful to them and be encouraged that he again would prove faithful even this more momentous endeavour. How helpful would it have been that there was this glorious aura where it became ever so clear that the father was in this moment and was exalting his son, glorifying him in his obedience as he saw that his son's only desire was to glorify his father. Yet the disciples could not fathom what they were seeing. By the time they got their heads together, Moses and Elijah are leaving. Like our mountaintop moments, the disciples wanted them to go on, and so Peter suggests, oh, let's build some shelters. But the moment is past. Perhaps it was because they heard Jesus, Moses and Elijah discussing Jesus' departure. In the original text, his exodus from the world, that they suggested shelters. After all, the Jews celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles at harvest time by living a week in temporary shelters as a reminder that God provided for Israel even in their time in the desert. But verse 33 simply records, he did not know what he was saying. 
funny how so often with Peter he stumbles on something profound without really knowing the true depth of what he's saying. Yes, there may well have been more benefit in taking time to consider. Back to those days of the Exodus, how God had triumphantly brought Israel out of Egypt, how he destroyed Pharaoh's army, how he provided for his people through that long and difficult time in the desert and how he had brought them through to the promised land. Yes, it would have been helpful for them to think more on how Jesus was about to do exactly the same thing, but on an eternal scale. But the time for discussion had been had. The direction was already clear. And it's time to move forward rather than linger on the mountaintop. But the problem for the disciples was by failing to pray so that they were awake to God and ready to listen, the disciples again found themselves, if you like, on the wrong side of the glass door, looking in on the realm of God's action instead of being at its very centre. As such, they still needed to hear the voice that came out of the cloud of glory, saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. They do well to recall, as would we, the words from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses foretold that God would raise up a prophet like him who would tell the people all the words of God. This was because the people had said, we are too afraid to deal face to face with the Lord God. Yet the warning they were also given was that God would hold to account anyone who did not listen to him. So the question bubbles up for the disciples and perhaps also for us. Will we truly listen? Will we hear and understand? Will there and our eyes be opened? And will we see Jesus for who he truly is? Now, it's an interesting thing to note that the story of Jesus does not go straight from the transfiguration directly to Jerusalem to bring history to a climax, like you might think a good movie would. Almost like Israel wandering in the desert, the story seems to meander. And the stories that follow are not always flattering to the disciples. What you're going to see is they're going to fail to heal the child. We're going to see them arguing over who is the greatest amongst them. And we're going to see that others whom Jesus called to follow him are going to turn away. The problem is, is that the disciples had still not understood who Jesus really is and what he is on about. And when people consider Jesus the man, they don't see a Brad Pitt. As a son of a carpenter, he is clearly no Bill Gates. And coming from Nazareth, no one saw him as a budding Albert Einstein. Yet they were happy for this man to keep doing his thing, especially as it helped them or their friends to fix their immediate problems. And I think we're often like that. We see God as a fixer to be called upon when things get a bit beyond us. We try to do things ourselves first, then we call on our friends, 
then we look to and then complain about our council or our government. But then the problem is far less often we've tended to pray. We have not looked to God. So today I want us to consider what's going on here. There is no doubt that Jesus was 100% man. He went up on a mountain, not because he needed any, it was any more spiritual, not because he needed any fresh revelation. If you remember, he'd already ex- explained what was going to happen, the Father's plan to the disciples earlier in the chapter. He simply went up the mountain to pray. Whilst praying, he would have been claiming the promises that his father had given him as in Psalm 2. But Psalm 2 begins with him with acknowledging that the nations are raging and conspiring. And in his case, he would have very much seen the Jews and the Gentiles conspiring against him. He would have seen a plot coming from within the twelve. And he would have seen many daily rejecting him. But he would not have despaired. He would have actually looked to his father confident that his father was in control and would uphold him. Therefore, he could confidently ask his father to fulfil his plans and make the nations his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. And there was a clear answer. The answer to that prayer was a resounding yes. God the Father wrapped his son fleetingly in the glow of the glory that was his from before the foundation of the world. As the sun sets up to continue his walk in obedience, even though it's going to mean his death, even death on a cross. Now, I want to suggest that prayer can be equally a transforming event for us. And while perhaps we might not expect Elijah and Moses to appear, we should expect God to hear and to act and for our lives to be changed. And whilst we are indeed to pray for our daily needs and we know that God will provide, I want to encourage us this morning to help us to move into the new year, not just praying that God will help us, but also that we might be used by him to roll out his kingdom agenda. You see, Jesus the man wanted to be God's faithful soldier, the soldier of Psalm 121. He knew he'd be facing massive opposition. He knew he could not afford to have his foot slip. He knew that he would face opposition in the daytime and that his betrayer would come at night. He needed his father to be watching out over his goings out and his comings in. Therefore, he needed to be continually looking to his almighty father. But whilst he was praying like that, his disciples were still just seeing Jesus as one who somehow had a power to help with the problems of the day. But Jesus had come to do something so much bigger. He had come to save the people from their sins. When we pray, it's good and right that we pray that God will meet our needs and relieve our suffering. Yet if we get stuck here, then I think that we will always end up just starting to question our God. Why does he not heal? Why does he not relieve suffering? Why does he not take away my insecurity? Instead, I think we need to change our expectations of God and understand his ultimate plan. 
You see, God is fundamentally on about saving people from their sins and having his chosen people (coughs) with him for eternity. That's what Luke 9 says that he's on about, proclaiming the kingdom, sharing its riches, living obediently even when it means suffering and then being brought to glory. And I don't think we want to keep standing on the outside looking in on God's plan. And if we are praying that we might be used of him, we can actually get in past that glass door. If we're looking to Jesus, we'll be proclaiming his kingdom. We'll be sharing generously. We'll be obediently following him, even if it's going to mean suffering in 2018. And do you know what? As we pray this prayer as we start this year and invite the Spirit to hold sway over our lives, we'll see his fruit abundantly in our lives. We'll see his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his gentleness and his self-control pouring out through us. Yet we'll only remain consistent and steadfast if we can fix our eyes on Jesus. If we, like his disciples, are sleepy or we get distracted, then we will not see the good works that God would have us do, even though they might be right in front of us, just like that moonwalking bear. If we get distracted with the busyness of life, we risk walking into glass doors, whereas if we pray and walk in step with the Spirit, we'll find something far more wonderful. As Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we who contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory that comes from the Lord. In other words, as we pray and open our hearts, we open our eyes and we open our ears to God and his big agenda of saving people from their sins, we'll become immersed in his plan and purpose. Our priorities will change. Our thoughts and our actions will become increasingly aligned to those that he would have us do. And whilst our faces may not glow white, they will indeed shine with the glory that comes from living according to the designer's instructions. One last story as I come to a close. A grandfather taught his nervous granddaughter of how to carry two cups of tea in saucers without spilling them. He said... Rather than continually flicking your eyes from one cup and saucer to the other, just fix your eyes on one and the other will move in line. And I've got to tell you, I've tried that and it works. But Hebrews 15 puts it like this. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us in 2018 run the race that's marked out before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. So this year, let's not be so self-absorbed that we walk into any glass doors. Let us not be people who minimise our God to a Mr Fix-It. Let's not look to ourselves or even our friends, our government, our nature anything for our eternal hope other than the Lord God. Rather, let us look to Jesus, who for the glory set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart, but rather by faithful prayer and living for him, may we be transformed in his image in ever-increasing glory. Amen.